Lord Jesus, I just want to thank you, Lord Jesus, for this day, Lord Jesus, and all your wonderful, Lord Jesus, things that you, Lord Jesus, do for us, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, thank you, Lord Jesus. Okay, uh, I just want to thank you for Annie and Sarah and Molly. I know that with your strength, we can change the world! We can change the world! Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars. And we give you the praise. Yes, Jesus. We cannot wait to see what you're going to yes. do today. And we are excited. Aunt Margaret's really nasty hangnail. And I worship you forever and ever. God, I, uh, I just, uh, um, toilet paper deodorant. Speaking of, I need to get some more. Hey God, uh, thanks for bringing us here today. Thank you for all the stuff that you're going to do in our lives. Uh, the ways you're going to work is absolutely amazing and we are super amped for everything that you hold for us. I just don't know what to say. Hey God, man, you're great. Help me find a mate. Amen. Salt, garlic salt, sea salt, kosher salt. God, just, just let your doves of knowledge flow from under our fingernails of repentance. The doves of knowledge <laughs> under the fingernails. I don't even know what that is. I found that. I thought it was kind of humorous, all the ways that people pray. Uh, if you've been in church, most of you have for a long time, um, you um, have heard some of that stuff. So it's humorous, but prayer is a big deal, and that's what we're talking about today. And, you know, it's been a couple weeks because... Two weeks ago is where we left off, last week being Father's Day, and uh, we had an awesome speaker. But two weeks ago, we left off in Matthew 6 with Jesus issuing a challenge to his disciples. And he was saying, when you go out and when you take care of the needy, when you practice your righteousness in front of men, don't do it in a way that is obvious, that's noticeable in front of men. Um, now, that sounds a little bit strange when he says, don't practice your righteousness out in front of everybody, because a few verses ago, he just told us that let your light so shine before men that people will see your good works and give glory to God. So why is he saying this here? Well, the Jewish people, to them, practicing righteousness and taking care of the needy went hand in hand. Um, that was part of who they were. And that's supposed to be part of who we are. That's part of a kingdom citizen is to be those that meet practical needs right in front of us. We're to be those who are generous with what God's given us. And it doesn't matter what income bracket you fall in, um, whatever God has given you, could be your time, could be your talents, could be your money, whatever it is, whatever God's blessed you with, we can use that to meet practical needs when God shows it to us. But Jesus saying, listen, it's your heart 
that I'm concerned with. Why are you doing it? Yes, we should be doing good works. And yes, that should point people to the Lord. Just don't seek it out for yourself. And Jesus uses the Pharisees and the scribes as his example of what not to do. That's a pretty sad, uh, pretty sad testimony that he uses the religious people of the day to say how not to walk out your faith. Uh, but we have that in the church today. We're always going to have that in the church because um, it's a heart issue. That's what he wants to get at. And our hearts, Jeremiah tells us, is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's what Jeremiah says. So why does the Holy Spirit take up residence inside our hearts? Because we need a new one. That's the reason why. That's the reason why the Holy Spirit indwells the heart of a believer. Jesus told Nicodemus that a man has to be born again. The heart you were born with is wicked. It's no good. It has to be born again, literally. You need a transformed heart and a renewed mind. Uh, Interesting side note, Alicia and I were talking about this uh, this weekend, just to jump all in, okay, just to like tackle all of it at once. And we were talking about being born again. And if you want to be a child of God, you have to be born again. There's no way around it. If you want to be in God's family, if you want to spend eternity with him, you need to be born again. Now, Paul tells the Ephesians that according to your sin nature, you were children of wrath. We were under God's wrath before we surrendered our lives to him. But once we surrender our lives, we're now under grace. We're children of grace, but you have to be born again. Now, here's the side note and the reason why I'm just jumping all in. Um, the, the, so now we're talking about abortion. Now we're just going to go to LGBT. So what we've been told for years and years and years and years is that I was born this way, right? This is not something I chose. I was born this way. Well, that, that doesn't really seem to be true now because now the numbers are getting bigger and bigger. What used to be single digits, low single digits in terms of percentage of the population is now in the younger generation, one out of five is what they say now. That's the statistic. 20% of the younger generation is identifying as something other than heterosexual, male or female. And so let's just say that you are born that way, okay? Let's just say that, let's give them that. Bible says you have to be born again. You have to be born again. We can't stay in our wickedness, in our sinful self. We have to be born again if we want to be a child of God. We have to change our minds. I said this in our last one. You have to change your mind, and God will change your heart. God's not going to change your heart. or not, God's not going to change your mind. Sorry, let me get that right. You change your mind, and God will change your heart. Okay, the desire for the religious people of that day was to be seen and to be praised by men. That's what they wanted. That's what they you know, we're all about was getting, you know, accolades from the people and their hearts were in the wrong place because they were giving hypocritically. And Jesus said, listen, when you give, just do it. Don't do it for the show. Don't do it for pats on the back. Just do it simply. And the father who sees you, your heavenly father who sees you will reward you. Trust me, you'd much rather have the reward that he's going to give than anything you could get on this side of eternity. Uh, Because what he gives, the reward that he gives is eternal. I don't know if you've noticed, but things don't last anymore. They're not made to last. Uh, everything's made to break and for, because they want you to buy it again, right? Everything's made very cheaply. In my grandfather's day, everything was built to last. He had this refrigerator in his basement. It was old and it worked. It probably would still run. Things were made to last, but even that refrigerator ain't going to last forever. But the rewards that he gives are going to last forever. One day we're going to stand before the Lord. We're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ And he's going to present us with our rewards for the things that we did for him here, here and now on the earth. 
Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, Paul tells the church that people build with all different types of materials. And he's not talking about building a house. He's talking about the types of things we do for the Lord, how we build our legacy here on the earth. And he says that people either build with gold, silver, and precious stones, or they build with wood, hay, and straw. Okay? We either build with pure materials or we build with corruptible materials. And he's saying the things that we do for the Lord, they either have pure motivations or they have corrupted motivations. And one day, he says, the fire is going to expose it. So all the things that we've done on this side of heaven are going to be exposed. And it's going to be shown whether or not we did them with pure motives for him or if we did them with selfish motives because we wanted recognition or we wanted to look good in the eyes of other people. And all of those things are wood, hay, and stubble, and they're all going to go up in smoke. And there's going to be a lot of grieving then when people realize that all those things they thought they were doing as unto the Lord, they really had selfish motivations and there's no reward for that. Not on that side of eternity. Everything you get will be here, will be the likes and the applauds and the pats on the back and the congratulations from all the other people if that's what you were doing it for. Jesus tells his disciples, don't do it for show. Be generous because it's proof. When we're generous, it's proof of where our true treasure lies in heaven, not on earth. And that's where we left off. Uh, Today, Jesus is talking about prayer. Uh, Last week, my dad had us all recite uh, the Lord's Prayer, which I think was pretty cool. It's a good transition. Thank you for the segue. Um, This is actually going to be a two-parter. I'm going to take this um, in two parts. We're going to talk about prayer today, and then we'll do the Lord's Prayer next week. But I'm going to go ahead and read the whole thing through. Uh, This is Matthew 6, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they're going to be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. The most well-known prayer of all time, the Lord's Prayer, less than 20 seconds to recite it. Very short. But it's not the length of the prayer, it's the depth of the prayer. It's the meaning that goes into it. That's what's important. When the Gettysburg Battleground became a national cemetery, um, there was a big a group of people there, they were going to dedicate the cemetery, and Secretary of State Edward Everett was asked to get up and share. He wanted to speak, and then they also asked Abraham Lincoln to speak and say a few words. And the Secretary of State, Edward uh, Everett, talked for one hour and 57 minutes. You guys think I talk a long time. One hour and 57 minutes. He went on and on and on. And then he sat down and everybody cheered, probably cheering because he was done after two hours. And then Abraham Lincoln steps up and he shuffles up to the podium, he puts on his spectacles, and he starts what we know today as the Gettysburg Address. And just two minutes after he started, he was done. The whole Gettysburg Address is less than two minutes. And when he got done, what he had said was so prayer-like that it seemed inappropriate to applaud. 
And as he began to sit back down, there was a reporter there from the Philadelphia Press who whispered to Abraham Lincoln, they were like, is that all? Is that it? And he was like, yeah, that's it. And that speech has become one of the most iconic, remembered speeches in all of American history. And it wasn't because of its length, it was because of its depth. It was because of the meaning. So we should not despise or look past the power of short prayers, right? Nothing wrong with that. You don't have to pray long. You don't have to pray loud. All you have to do is pray it from your heart. And Jesus actually teaches this twice. He teaches it here on the Sermon on the Mount. And then again in Luke's gospel, uh, in Luke 10, Jesus and his friends, uh, the disciples, are hanging out with some friends in Bethany, uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So they're in Bethany hanging out with them. And it says that at one point, once they were done, Jesus goes off to pray. And he would withdraw often to get away to pray. Now, the disciples had been watching Jesus, and they had been noticing this trend that Jesus would go away early in the morning, or he would get away late in the evening, or sometimes in the middle of the day, he would just withdraw from everybody and go off and pray and spend time with the Lord. And as they watched Jesus perform all of these miracles, they started to think, you know, there's got to be something to this getting away and praying thing, because every time he comes back, he does something awesome. And so this is out of Luke 10. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you has a friend? We'll go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey. I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So Jesus teaches this prayer, and then he tells us this story that sounds kind of strange about a guy going to his friend's house in the middle of the night asking for food. The Jewish people placed a higher priority on prayer than any other people group out there. Prayer was super important to them. I mean, their ancestors had spoken to God. No other people group in history had had the privilege of speaking to God. So if anyone should have known how to pray, it should have been the Jewish people. But over time, those prayers had become corrupted by tradition and by ritual. And so these people that Jesus is talking to were even confused about the topic of prayer. Now, we love tradition. I love tradition. Uh, but over time, those traditions, um, if we're not careful, can lose their meaning. And when that happens, they just become ritual. Now, we just had Memorial Day like a few weeks ago. We're getting ready to have the 4th of July. Uh, it's moving quickly. But Memorial Day, a lot of people think, you know, hey, it's a holiday. We get together with friends and family. It's the official start of summer. We're going to grill out. But like, that's not the reason why we celebrate Memorial Day. It's to think about and remember the men and women who gave their lives for this country. But over time, those kind of things can become ritualistic. They can lose their meaning in tradition. And that's what Jesus is talking about. And in the people in Jesus' day, um, they could spout off prayers, long ritualistic prayers, without giving much thought to it at all. Um, the camp that Kyla went to, just a couple of weeks ago, we even picked her up. It was at a Presbyterian uh, college down south. And 
a lot of the parts where she was um, taking part in these sessions, they were very liturgical in nature. And so they would do um, responsive readings, or they would read the Apostles' Creed, things like this. And those things are great. They help reinforce our faith and what we believe. But if we're not careful, those types of things can turn into rituals. And they can turn into things that we can say mindlessly without ever thinking about the meaning behind the words. That can be the real danger. Have you ever driven somewhere? And when you pulled in, you're like, how did I even get here? (laughs) Like, I remember getting in the car and I'm here now, but I don't even remember driving here because the route was so familiar to you, you didn't even have to think about it. You just arrived at the end. And that can happen sometimes with prayer. We start off, we know how to pray. We've done it a hundred times. We may even use some of the same words. And before we know it, we say amen. And we can't really remember what we prayed about or what we prayed for. We just kind of went through the motions. Our heart wasn't into it. Well, the Jewish people prayed at least three times a day. At least three times. They prayed at 9 a.m., they prayed at noon, and then they prayed again at 3 p.m. So three times a day at least, they would pray. And it didn't matter where you were or what you were doing. When the clock struck 9, noon, or 3, you stopped what you were doing and you started praying. And they put out a call to prayer. If you're over there now, you can hear it. It'll go out over the speakers. All throughout the cities, when it's time to pray, everybody turns around and starts praying. But unfortunately, in Jesus' day, uh, those times, those dedicated times of prayer become ritualistic and even superstitious. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at here with the parable of the neighbor. Um, He goes knocking on the door in the middle of the night. Now, we all agree this is a really inappropriate time for a house call, middle of the night. But he has a friend, a friend in need. And he wants to provide for him. So he goes knocking on, asking him for a favor. And I wonder if there was a sense that prayers could only be offered at certain times and for certain occasions in certain ways. And Jesus is kind of blowing that up saying, listen, your father, you're not going to bother him when you pray. He hasn't shut the door on you. You can knock on his door at any time and ask him anything. You have someone in need, you have a need, you're not bothering him, you're not going to wake him up, go knocking on his door. You need to ask, you need to seek, and you need to knock. Everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds, and everyone who knocks the door will be opened. But if you don't make the house call, you're not going to receive anything. We have to make that house call. We need to be persistent in it. He says, even though that guy is his neighbor, he's not going to get up because he's his friend, but only because he's persistent. Now, how much more does God want to listen to us? Their prayers have become ritualistic. Uh, They had become prescribed for certain times and occasions, but they also had been trained to value long prayers. People that prayed lengthy. If you prayed loud enough and long enough, surely God was going to hear you then. But length had gotten confused with sincerity. Um, the prophet Elijah is called the prophet of fire. And I'm sure he didn't care about nicknames, but that's a pretty good one, prophet of fire. And in his day, the people had fallen into idolatry. Once again, they were worshiping the Canaanite pagan god Baal. Now, it's interesting because, you know, we're talking about this here today, and I looked it up, and Baal worship included child sacrifice. That's one of the things that they got into when they went into the promised land. They walked away from God and got into all kinds of evil, that being one of them. And we hear about this demon Baal all throughout the Old Testament. And Elijah says uh, to the prophets of Baal that this time there were 450 prophets of Baal in Israel. 
450. And he walks up to him. He says, I tell you what, why don't we see whose God is real? All of you meet me up on top of Mount Carmel tomorrow morning. You bring a sacrifice. I'll bring one. And whichever God answers with fire, whichever God burns it up, that's the real God. How about it? And I said, okay. And so the next day, they go up to the mountain. They get everything set up, and Elijah says, okay, I invited you. You guys go first. Give it your best shot. And so they start off, and it says that they cried out to Baal from morning to noon. From morning to noon, they go on and on. They're praying. They're going crazy, trying to get Baal to do something. And then it's noon, and Elijah, he waited way longer than I would have, by the way. At noon, he says, he starts to poke fun at them. He starts to mock them. He's like, listen, um, I mean, he's a god, right? Like, maybe he's busy. He's a god. They're pretty busy. So maybe you need to yell louder. Or maybe he went on a journey. Maybe he just can't hear you because he's far away, so you need to yell louder. Or, ooh, maybe he's in the bathroom. Like, maybe he's in the bathroom. You better shout a little bit louder because sometimes, you know, in the bathroom, you can't really hear everything. And so it says that they become even more animated, and they get swords out, and they start cutting themselves, and blood's gushing everywhere, and they're exhausted. And that goes on from noon until it tells us at the time of the evening sacrifice, which was coincidentally three o'clock. So from morning to noon, they cry out. From noon to three, they cry out. Nine, noon, three. Three strikes, you're out. Nothing's happened. Three o'clock, the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah says, that's enough. It's my turn. My turn to pray now. This is what he prays in that situation. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. That's it. That's the prayer that Elijah prays. And fire falls from heaven And not only does it devour the sacrifice, it burns up the wood, it burns up the stones. I've never even seen fire burn up stones before. And he had had them dig this huge trench around it and dumped a bunch of water on it just to make it even more impossible to burn up. And God burned the whole thing up, just in case there was any doubt. It wasn't the length of the prayer that mattered, it was the depth of the prayer that he prayed. It was from his heart. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 5.2, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. The wisest man who ever lived said, don't talk too much. Two extremes. You have thoughtless, idle prayer that's just going through the motions. Or we think we'll get a better response if we make a big passionate speech out of it. Both of those miss the mark because God doesn't need to be roused awake. He doesn't need to be bothered. We don't have to badger him for him to listen to us. Some might say, Nathan, when I pray, it just seems like nothing happens. When I pray, nothing happens. Problem is that a lot of Christians use prayer like sailors use a pump on a boat. They use it when it's sinking. They use the pump when the ship's sinking. And when the ship starts sinking, when it starts rocking back and forth, we tend to go from prayer. Conversations with God are not for emergency use only. They're to be used on a constant basis. We don't just pray when difficult times comes. We pray because we know difficult times are going to come. We don't just pray in the middle of the storm. We we pray because we know a storm is coming. Jesus got away often to pray, and it was the source of his power and his strength in ministry. And the disciples knew this. That's the reason why the disciples didn't ask Jesus, teach us to perform miracles. They didn't ask Jesus, teach us to preach. 
They said, Jesus, teach us to pray. They knew that was what was behind his power and his ministry. Jesus' two most intense times of prayer were before the trial, not when he got in it. 40 days in the desert before the, you know, Satan came to tempt him. Jesus was praying for 40 days before the trial came. And then again in the garden, first time in the desert, second time in the garden. Before Judas betrays him, he's praying intensely three times before the trial got there. That's the importance of not just praying in the storm, praying before the storm gets there. You will have the power and the strength that you need to sustain you. Now, should we pray in the middle of the storm? Absolutely. We have to. Should we pray before it gets there? Absolutely. Now, I struggle with this as much as everybody else does. If, script, if, if praying wasn't important, Satan wouldn't bother. Okay? But anything that's important, he's going to do his best to keep us distracted from. And prayer is one of the number one things that Satan wants to distract us from. And I'm convinced that the lack, the lack of power in the church and the lack of power in Christians' lives is directly related to the lack of prayer. At least in sincere prayer with God at the center. Um, because when it becomes ritual, uh, when it only becomes offered at certain times, like breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and if we're real spiritual, maybe before bedtime, when it's only offered at those times or when it's ritual or when it's only meaningless repetition and it's not a conversation between us and God, it's not going to give you power in your life spiritually. Uh, there's two basic beliefs when it comes to prayer and communion with God. The first is that uh, prayer is simply tuning in, getting in line with the will of God because God's going to do what God's going to do. He's sovereign. He's going to do whatever he wants regardless of if or when men pray. Right? God's just going to do that. So our job when we pray is to find out what God's will is and get in line with that. Then the other um, extreme is that the actions that God takes are largely dependent on the prayers of the saints. Like God is motivated when his children pray. So you've got these two extremes, right? Like we could pray, but we're really just trying to line up with God. And, you know, no, we actually, he actually moves when we pray. So um, which one is right? I, I think the answer is yes. I think the answer is yes. You can find scriptures in the Bible to support both of those. Okay? So what does that mean? Yes, God is sovereign, but it's also true that within that framework, within his sovereignty, that he asks his people to seek him in prayer and to ask him for guidance and provision and protection and mercy and forgiveness. The danger is if we go to one extreme, we really don't pray. Because God's sovereign, he's going to do it, so why, why pray? And the other one is, that we boss God around. Like we try to tell God what to do and we use him as our cosmic genie because we name it and claim it and we tell God what to do. But both of those miss the mark. There have been times where my kids have come to me and they're, you know, they, and you've seen this before, they come to me and they're like, you're probably going to say no, but can I do X, Y, Z, Right? And I don't like that as a father because I want to do things for my kids, but it has to line up with my will and my plans and what I know is good for them, okay? And then the other extreme is they'll come to me and say, hey, I'm doing this today, and they tell me what they're going to do <laughs> and what I need to do to help that happen for their day. And that doesn't usually go very well either. So both of those extremes miss the mark, but in the middle, is where we need to find it. We do it humbly. We do this with the Lord. A much better way to approach our Father is to simply say, Father, please show me what you have for me today. I have things on my agenda, things that I think are important, but ultimately, I want your agenda 
not my agenda. And there are things on my mind, things that are weighing me down, things that I want to bring to you, things you already know about. And this is the outcome that I would like to see, God. This is what I'm asking for, Father. But nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. The focus of prayer is God, not on me. We want the heart of God. We don't want to boss him around. Isaiah 45, 9 through 12, Isaiah says this, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? Woe to him who says to his father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you question me about my children or command me concerning the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded their host. We don't command God, but we do seek his will, and we make our requests known to him. That's what Paul told the Philippians. Pray, make your requests known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, the the, the type of peace that the world doesn't get, it will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's what we're supposed to do. Seek his will, present our requests, Let his peace wash over us because he's got it. Martin Luther said, when we pray, we are instructing ourselves more than we're instructing him. We don't have to inform or persuade God. We just have to come to him sincerely and meaningfully and devotedly. You've probably heard this verse out of James 5, 516. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. The context of this specific verse is in regards to praying for healing. Um, At one time or another, we've all prayed for healing, either our own healing or for the healing of a loved one. And sometimes we see that healing, other times we don't. And, you know, we get discouraged because we want our will to be done and not God's will to be done. So what does it mean to pray effectively and to pray fervently? Uh, I mentioned Elijah earlier. He's going to be our example once again, because in James 5, 17, the very next verse James tells us that Elijah, a man who was known for effective prayer, was also a man just like we are. Yes, he was an incredible prophet of God, but he was just a man just like you and I are. The first time we meet Elijah, he's storming into the courts of Ahab, and he tells the king that it's not going to rain until he says so because the people have fallen into idolatry and worship of Baal. How How could Elijah walk in and make a statement like that? James told us that he prayed earnestly. Now, the Greek word for prayer is desis, which means to bow down. And the Greek word for earnestly is to pray. So he was praying, bowed down, submitted to the Lord, submitted to the scriptures as well. Elijah knew the scriptures. Why the scriptures? Elijah knew that Deuteronomy 11, where it says, Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain. And the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord has given you. Elijah knew the promise. He knew the warning. He was able to pray effectively because he was submitted to God and he was submitted to the scriptures. And I think another reason why the church in America lacks power is because it isn't submitted or knowledgeable of the scriptures. That's why you hear me constantly banging the drum of read your Bibles. You got to know the word. You got to be submitted to the word. Now, will God hear you if you don't know the scriptures? Yes, God will hear you. God always hears you, always hears his kids. 
But we won't be able to accurately discern his will in a given situation if we're not led by the Spirit and if we don't know what the promises of God are. We have to know what the promises are. Elijah knew the word. He was submitted to the word and he prayed according to the word. That's important as well. So to pray effectively is to combine prayer with the reading of his word. We pray and we read together because when we're reading, your mind's engaged. And as you're reading, God's speaking to us through his word. You can't say that God's not speaking to you when your Bible is closed. If you want to hear God speak to you, open the scriptures and read and he will speak to you. In John 15, Jesus is talking to his disciples about how he's the true vine and we're to be branches that are connected to him, drawing our life and our fruitfulness from him. And he tells him this in verse seven, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. Abide in him, but his words also need to abide in you. If my word is stirring in you and you're staying close to me, you'll be able to ask anything that you want as you pray biblically. And it will happen. To pray effectually is to pray biblically. And that's to seek him, to make our requests known to him, not to command him, but to pursue his will. And we're only going to know what his will is if we're connected to him like branches. That's effectiveness. So what does fervent prayer look like? Does it mean that we're supposed to strain until the veins pop out in our head and our, fa- you know, our face is all red? Are we supposed to pray loudly or use lots of Christianese words? Well, that's what Jesus was just saying not to do because that's what the religious people of the day did. So after he hacked up all the prophets of Baal, Elijah told King Ahab, he said, all right, it's going to rain. Three and a half years without rain. Now it's going to rain because the prophets, they're all dead. So the worship of Baal is over. Now it's going to rain. So right after Elijah prayed this prayer that lasted, you know, less than a few seconds and fire fell from the sky, now we see him praying again. And we're told this time that he bows down, that he puts his head between his knees and he starts to pray fervently. And this is the prayer. And he said to his servant, go up now and look towards the sea. And he went up and looked and he said, there's nothing. And he said, go again seven times. And the seventh time he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you. Seven times Elijah prayed to the Lord. He prayed, go look. He prayed again and back and forth. Seven times he prayed. He prayed with fervency and he prayed with persistency. You might say, I didn't think we had to go through any kind of spiritual calisthenics for God to hear us. Like, I thought if we prayed effectively and fervently that God would hear us. And he does. It's not complicated. It is still simple. But there are times when we pray comfortably and we pray casually, casually and things happen. Sometimes the fire doesn't fall. Sometimes the rain doesn't come and we wonder why. Or we pray and we don't even think about it again. We just kind of pray and we shrug our shoulders, you know, oh. Nothing happened. We're not persistent in our prayers. We don't pray with fervency. But we are to persist in prayer. Pray until we get an answer. You should pray until you get an answer. Um, There's always an answer. There's really no such thing as unanswered prayer because all prayer falls into one of three categories. It's either yes or no or wait. It's one of those three things. Yes, no, or wait. Pray till you get an answer. Now, why does the Lord want us to keep coming to him in prayer for one of these these answers? It's because he knows what's ahead. 
We keep praying till we get one of these answers because he knows what's ahead. As Elijah's story unfolds, right after the incredible victory on Mount Carmel, he falls into a severe depression. So much so that he starts to lose the will to live. He starts to despair of life. Because King Ahab's wife, Jezebel, we've heard of Jezebel, she found out that he had killed all the prophets of Baal and she put a bounty on his head. And she said, don't rest until he's dead. And so he freaks out. He starts running for his life, quite literally. He has this huge victory against the prophets of Baal, and now he's running scared, and he has severe despondency. Now, God knew what was coming for Elijah, and he needed to log some time with God. He needed to log some prayer time with the Father. And when we're spending time with God and persisting in prayer, it might be that there's a battle coming up that we don't know about, and we need to log some time with the Father in prayer. Because what's happening when he's praying for that rain cloud, right? Relationship, communion with the Father, But a lot of people give up and we neglect time spending time in the word or spending time in prayer. And then when we face a trial, we're totally unprepared and we begin to freak out. And even though Elijah was having an emotional low, he was still communing with the father and God sustained him. Even when he was hiding out in the cave, God encouraged him. God provided for him because the lines of communication were open. He was a man just as we are, subject to the same passion, subject to the same depressions, but he was communing with the Father and he sustained him in that season. And that can only happen when we do it effectively and persistently. Okay, effective and fervent of a righteous man accomplishes much. Now, James calls Elijah a righteous man and we're like, of course, it's Elijah. Of course he's righteous. But James also said that he was a man of like passions, just like us. He's the same vulnerabilities as we have which explains why he can call down fire from heaven. And then in the next sentence, he's running scared 70 miles like a chicken with his head come off to hide in a cave. But it's not because of how we perform because we fail miserably. Our righteousness is in who we believe in. Our righteousness doesn't come from the way we behave. It comes from who we believe in. So when we believe When we accept his righteousness, when we pray biblically and fervently, God will accomplish much through that. Now, the devil's going to try to intimidate you. Every single time you pray, he's going to try to intimidate you. He's going to remind you of your past. He's going to say, how can you be effective and fervent? Because you certainly aren't righteous. And he's going to try to remind you of your past. But when he does that, just remind him of his future, right? That God has won the victory. So we can pray effectively and fervently, even though he tries to intimidate us, even though he tries to um, cause us to lose hope. Our righteousness comes from what we believe, not how we behave. The old adage that prayer changes things is only partly true. Uh, Faith changes things, but prayer changes me. Faith changes things, but prayer changes me. That's what we bring to it. We bring faith to it. And because of our righteousness is by faith, we have access to the Father. Because of that access, we can pray in faith. And faith-filled prayers can accomplish much for the kingdom when it's offered biblically and persistently. Jesus has been saying, you know, I want to get to the root of the issue. I want to get to your guys' heart. Faith changes things, but prayer keeps us in relationship with the Father. And the lines of communication are open and we can discover what his will for us is in any situation. Now, Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door at knock. Um, If any man hears my voice 
and opens the door, I'll come in and have a meal with him, right? And that meal speaks of relationship. Um, so we're opening the door. What happens when we pray is it turns us into door openers. When we pray, we're opening the door and we're inviting Jesus into that situation, into our lives. He doesn't say, behold, I knock at the door and if you don't answer it, I'm going to kick it in. He doesn't say that. He's not going to force himself on us. But when we pray, we open the door and we invite him into that situation, inviting him in through prayer. Now, that doesn't mean that he's obligated to do whatever we desire, whatever we wish. God is sovereign and he knows what's best. He knows what's coming down the road and what you and I need to be prepared for. That's the reason why we pray. We like to hear yes, but no is just as much of an answer as yes is. Um, The question is, when the answer is no, do we trust him? Do we trust his will? When we pray and he says no, do we trust him? Is God's will sovereign over everything? Yes, it is. Does God still ask us to petition him in prayer so that we can partner with him in the work so that he can move on behalf of us and behalf of other people? Absolutely. Augustine said, it was your Lord who put an end to long-windedness so that you would not pray as if you wanted to teach God by your many words. Piety, not verbosity, is in order when you pray since he knows your needs. Now some say perhaps, but if he knows our needs, why should we bring our requests even in a few words? Why should we pray at all? Since he knows, let him give what he deems necessary for us. Even so, he wants you to pray so that he may confer his gifts on the one who really desires them and will not regard them lightly. I thought that was good. Why should we even pray? If he knows what we need, why should we pray? Because he wants to give his gifts to one who really desires them. Um, If you've ever given a gift to someone and they were just kind of like, oh, thanks. Like, you kind of want to take it back. You know, like you knew knew the need, you knew what they needed and you gave them it, but they weren't appreciative of it. And so you really didn't want to hand it out. But God knows what we need and he wants us to be appreciative of it. And so for those that are really seeking, he wants to confer it upon them that will not regard them lightly. So this week, I encourage you guys to try God. Um, my dad, when I was little, he had a bracelet that said, try God. I always thought that was a little strange when I was little because what I would hear from time to time is don't try me. Don't try me. You know, and I'm like, what does that mean? Don't try God. Is he angry? No, it means we need to try God. We need to believe his promises. We need to take him at his word, trust his goodness, pray simply, but pray persistently. You might say, well, Nathan, I don't really know how to pray. We have to come back next week (laughs) because that's what we're going to talk about. (laughs) No, we are going to talk about the Lord's Prayer next week. And God gives us a roadmap to relationship with the Father as we uh, go through the Lord's Prayer. But let me encourage you with this. God can pick sense out of our confused prayers. We may feel like our prayers don't make sense. We may feel confused. We may feel like we don't have the words to speak. But God can pick sense out of that. There have been times where all I could pray was Jesus. That's all I could say. All I could say was Jesus. And it says that the Spirit makes intercession for us because we don't know how to pray as we ought to. Like all we could do is groan because we don't know how to pray. And that's okay. God knows our hearts. He knows your spirit. He knows what's on your mind. He just asks us to come to him. Just come to me humbly, devotedly, sincerely. It's not our many words or our vain repetition. It's just talking with the Father.
is really what it is. And we just had Father's Day, and I know that Father's Day is bittersweet. It's great for some people, and it's a bitter day for others, and I understand that. And a lot of people's view of God has been colored by uh, their dads and their relationship with their dads and uh, how that, you know, transpired. And so some people say, I don't like God. When I call God Father, that, that I have a bad picture of God and who he is because my father was not good to me. Um, he wants to introduce himself to you anew. Let me say that. Because you're his child and he cares for you. And how you're going to find that out is in here. We, may, we did not have perfect fathers. Um, but we're to be reflections of, as dads, we're to be reflections of our Heavenly Father. Sometimes we're really bad reflections of that. But that doesn't mean that he's not a good father. So we need to reflect him, right? He doesn't reflect who we are. So as you're talking with the Father this week, just I encourage you, try God this week. Pray persistently. Pray till you get an answer. But, uh, you know, do it in a way that honors him. Pray biblically. And uh, we'll see things happen. You'll see results. Again, you may not see it here in the natural. We don't battle against flesh and blood. We do battle in the spirit, and we do that through prayer. Again, the culture right now is on fire. We're not going to win the battle on Facebook. It just ain't going to happen. We're going to win it in prayer. And people have been praying for 50 years over this thing. We're going to continue to pray. Because you know what? Things are going to get a lot worse before they get better. We've been warned that. So how are we going to get through it? How are we going to be faithful and stand in the midst of a trial? Well, we're going to be praying beforehand. We're going to be ready beforehand. We're not just going to pray in, in the storm. We're going to pray before the storm. I always bring up the example of like professional athletes, right? They use the phrase, he really rose to the occasion. Well, no, he didn't. <laughs> Nobody just rises to the occasion. Nobody just got good all of a sudden in that moment. It's weeks and months and years of preparation for that one moment to be able to perform in that way. And if we want to be faithful in the middle of the storm, if we want to stand strong and not get blown over, we need to be praying now when it's sunny and blue skies. God is faithful. And he'll encourage us when we're low because I guarantee when we go through those times um, of, you know, lowliness, we're going to feel like we don't have it together. You know, we don't. We'll be like, what, you know, what, what right do I have to call on God? Well, we've been calling on God and he is faithful to sustain us through those seasons. I give you my worship. Still deserve